0: Welcome to the Chasing Capital podcast, where we focus on notable VCs, operators, and founders in their 20s and 30s, giving insight and advice to university students. I'm quite excited to have Ernest Sweat as a sixth guest on the show today, associate partner at Great Point Ventures, aka GPV, focusing on commerce infrastructure, physical spaces like prop tech and manufacturing, and IT slash data infrastructure like enterprise AI and no slash low code products. Previously, Ernest was a founding member of the venture arm of industrial real estate owner Prologis, founding board member of Black VC, consultant at the Bridgespan Group, and started his career in equity research at BMO Capital Markets. Ernest studied econ at Columbia and has an MBA from Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management. Let's dive in. Okay, so just starting off, if you could describe your path from Columbia to doing equity research at BMO to now working at GPV.
1: Yeah, uh, thanks. And thanks for having me, Alex, uh, on your podcast. Um, yeah, if, if you would have told me when I was kind of sitting in your seat, Alex, that I would be in venture capital, I, I would be my, my, <laughs> my uh, jaw probably would have hit the floor. Like, first of all, I don't think I actually knew what venture capital was when I was 20, 21. Um, and uh, yeah, so probably be a lot of questions like what is it? But it's been a path that if you look back, it kind of makes sense, but I, I just didn't know it, it existed at that time. And so I, while at Columbia, I was in a college, I was in economics and political science, um, kind of dual concentration. Um, And I'd always kind of set my eyes on, you know, I was graduating around uh, 2007, and, you know, at the time, it was still the hotness to be on Wall Street. And so I wanted something that was a little, just like my liberal arts background at Columbia, to have a balanced approach of not only what I was really good at, but what I could strengthen. And so... Through a number of internships, I was able to, I I really love interacting with people. I love telling stories. I love um, understanding and listening to people who are experts about things, uh, and then using that information as as a way to make actionable kind of next steps. Mm -hmm. And for me, within Wall Street, the balance for me was I didn't just wanna do modeling, which I knew would be a great skill for me, but it wasn't something I was running into. And I also knew I just didn't wanna lean on my ability to communicate. Um, and so the balance, instead of doing sales or trading or investment banking, it was like equity research. Mm-hmm. And so I went after a number of equity research uh, opportunities. I actually didn't even have a job as things uh, as I, after I graduated. Um, but kept it going, stayed persistent, kept talking to firms that I've been speaking with for my entire kind of like second semester. Mm-hmm of senior year and luckily got uh, a role at BMO Capital Markets. Um, and BMO uh, is a Canadian investment bank and I was in the New York office and the open slot they had for equity research associate was for REITs. And I didn't even know really what a REIT was <laughs> <right>. <laughs> uh, until I got into the job. But um, essentially I just knew, oh, it has to do something with real estate. And so that's kind of how I, I started out my career. And so if you look at, you know, fast forward to now a great point, I've been an inventor for about six years, but all the skills I've built, like the foundation i built in equity research uh, is helping me today, right? Being able to get really deep on a industry market, be able to analyze a company, see where the uh, you know, advantages are in the market, disadvantages, combining both micro issues so the company issues with what's going on in the markets so or the macro and mm-hmm. then being able to articulate uh, the that your point of view to different audiences it's the stuff I continue to do today.
0: Yeah, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Do you think, and you mentioned like learning how to actually articulate your view specifically about markets. Do you think that that's been one of the more kind of important things? I mean, I've just been thinking about this a lot where you know how now tr- most people i mean there seems to be sort of a shift towards kind of disregarding writing or liberal arts in college and more as a focus on technical skills but then on the other hand you see a lot of these jobs like like for vc for example where a lot of it actually is writing and kind of creating creating kind of content in that way so yeah i'm a- always curious about that
1: well i mean th- things always ebb and flow and i'm old enough now where i've seen a couple cycles in industries and and uh, the economy Mm -hmm. and you always like yes there's a need for people to be more technically inclined right so understanding technology maybe even coding um but if everyone's doing that then it's the table stage yeah (laughs) and unfortunately not unfortunately, fortunately for me but i feel like speaking for some of my friends who are engineers unfortunately for them sometimes you know, you still have to, to conduct business, you still need to interact with humans. We haven't found technology to completely displace human to human interaction. And so, you know, no matter how technical someone is, having also the ability to communicate uh, and influence and show point of view um, is, is really, really, really important, especially as for people to progress in their careers and be an executive thought leader, you know, very successful. Like all those things, mm-hmm. you know, it comes down to being able also to communicate. Um, yeah,
0: yeah that, that makes a lot of sense. Do you think that Do you think that like, that's something you can adequately learn in college, for example, or it's something you really, when you mentioned you kind of hone that skill and equity research or something, people seem to develop kind of in their first job or soon after they graduate?
1: Yeah, I think it can I don't think it's, it's one of those things where oh, you're only just born with it. I think it could yeah. happen for different people at different times. Like I think some of those individuals in in my uh, class at Columbia naturally had abilities to and they utilized the classroom. They maybe spoke up more, had you know brought up conflict in the, you know, their core classes and, and <laughs> being able to to, 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 to debate and in yeah. um in, you know, um you know, look at and other point of views and, and attack those point of views or support those point of views. I think all that, that stuff is helpful in, in a class, in class. And then also it's a safe space, right? There's no, um, no real, um, like risk in what you can uh, lose. It's only more reps for you to learn. So I definitely push students to continue to you know, try out new things as, and they, and figure out what's their core communication style, because all of us have a different communication style, um, and you want to just leverage your kind of internal powers so you can be the best version of yourself, but if that doesn't happen then, like me, I got, I got to hone in on it at, at work, and then when I went to business school, being able to kind of have another safe space where I can hone in on it and see how people that have worked in different functions, what they focus on, the questions they ask, you know. I yeah. think not just one of the parts of communication people forget is like how you also um, absorb information. And so listening yeah. and being able to make space for people, ask, be curious and asking questions.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely, I think the listening part is definitely underrated. But yeah, but like switching back to kind of your current your current work at Great Point. I was curious how you actually got originally interested in some of these more like unsexy physical industries and spaces like manufacturing, construction, freight, those kinds of things.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's a result of just my background and kind of my professional career. I learned quickly as I was trying to break into venture that um, it's all about knowing your audience, so whoever you're speaking to, as well as taking advantage of your previous experience. You know, when you look at typical, I don't even want to use typical, that's not a good word, but you look at certain kind of archetypes of venture capitalists, they come from a lot of different areas, right? But generally, the common theme is all of them have been able to um, leverage uh, their prior experience. Mm-hmm. um so making sure that you know if they worked in a specific function in a certain industry let's say they were have always been working in tech companies and always been helping with uh has been always an executive in sales or business development that's something that they focus on when they invest and so for me i wasn't going to be able to jump to the hottest new kind of like industry or type of technology and at the time like you know ai and um and consumer marketplaces, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't gonna be able to like understand the nuances, have relationships in those, in those industries to really like garner enough, essentially trust from others to think that I was expert or somebody that could know the space well to yeah. invest in. And so my thing was like, okay, I'm gonna leverage what I already know, which was, you know, working at a bank, if, uh, investment banks. So financial tech, that was one of my areas. I tried to start a ed tech company, uh, which is sold early. So like that was another space ed tech. And then lastly, um, real estate. So I, I had, you know, worked in covering REITs. So I felt like I knew what was going on in the real estate space better than most. And mm-hmm. so just leveraging that, And I use that as kind of a wedge to get into the space, get into some conversations with founders and investors to then develop a more thought out thesis and network uh, to how to invest in those sectors. And then so what you learn is like, I focused on those three. If you notice, there's no supply chain or manufacturing in that. Mm -hmm. But having the, the kind of prop tech approach and looking at a lot of real estate and covering those companies is how I then got at Prologis Ventures, which was kind of a launching point for me to learn more about supply chain and logistics because we invested in a lot of stuff like that, as mm-hmm. well as some of the, the spaces that like always been fascinated with data tools. And so luckily we invested in a few. So I got a perspective in that and B2B marketplaces. And we luckily in, invested in a number of those too. So that's how I was able to kind of develop a the reps and knowledge to get to where I'm at now. And so I have like four things and, that I focus on because I think that is important to, to be very focused in what you invest in, mm-hmm. especially in this market when there's so much capital, um, just so other investors know what to send you as well as founders know, you know what you're about and can kind of find you, right? And so I've really leveraged kind of my previous background to invest in commerce infrastructure, which is for me, all kind of supply chain, tech, everything B2B around selling goods. So that could be MarTech, that could be, like I said, logistics tech, that could be um, e-commerce enablement. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second area is uh, built environment. And so that encompasses everything around kind of buildings and building things. So you have manufacturing on the building things, but then all things around buildings, so like mm-hmm. prop tech, construction tech. And then the other two are those ones that I la- later that I got into uh, from Prologis, which was B2B marketplaces and um, Broadly, as well as um, as data tools. So th- those are areas I look at, that's what I'm focused on. And I just, if you notice, I've picked up something from each Kind of job that i've had to be able
0: to do that No, that, that's super interesting i mean do you f- a lot of those different sectors you mentioned there is also this kind of hardware component do you think that that almost makes like the opportunities bigger just because once like once a company's able to get that getting nice get a good pairing of having very strong software as well as having kind of this requisite hardware then able to basically establish like a much stronger than just like a purely software play i mean I, this i mean this reminds me you know there's this obviously like a lot of these SaaS kind of like no code local code uh, productivity tools become super hot and there are so many most a lot of the companies could do something slightly different but do you not really see the same dynamics happening in in some of the areas that you mentioned
1: so actually uh, I'll push back a little bit on the industries I look at I still primarily am focused on just software companies oh yeah and it's because if you look at the theme, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of offline activity happening or large fixed assets, right? That are in play within these respective workflows. But I usually invest in technology that helps digitize those business to business transactions or helps orchestrate the workflow in a more efficient way. So you can get hundred percent utilization on your key fixed assets, which are like buildings or trucks or um, people, right? Getting them more efficient. And so I I still look at a lot of software or tech enabled services, there's a lot of stuff that I do. Okay, got it. Are is
0: that, are more of these companies starting to also explore hardware or basically they just don't wanna deal with it? And it's basically, they're just, like if they decided to do so, they're really taking a big margin cut.
1: Well, I think is hardware is the problem with hardware. If you look at it from your consumer life, right? It's perspective. Yeah. New phones come out every four months and get better and better. And um, well, maybe not for us. <laughs> they don't. I was going to say the last part, cheaper and cheaper. They do get cheaper and cheaper for the people building it. <laughs> but for us, I guess they charge more. But that's what you're seeing as well, right? Like on the enterprise side is, hardware is getting smarter faster and cheaper yeah and so a lot of times people have built proprietary um, hardware as just a way to get in but their long-term play is just to have the software um be the be the source of most of their um kind of upside
0: yeah no that, that makes a lot of sense are is the typical founder in these spaces are they usually very experienced in the space or is it more so this type of person who maybe read about it is pretty interested in things that and then thinks that they have or actually do have some interesting insight where they can you know leverage technology
1: yeah i think it's a it's a combination of of, of both a little bit i mean what i look for is someone who you know you don't necessarily have to have like 20 years of experience in these old industries Mm -hmm. Uh, but you do want to be able to to cultivate a understanding and so that can come in advisors they could come with partnerships but you do want to have this I I think the best are those that are a combination of you know maybe out a little bit of outsider and insider within the company Mm -hmm. and so having an outside perspective because typically if you've been in the industry so long you might get discouraged and think there's not a way for you to solve this problem because it's just how it is. And so having a combination of people who see it from the outside, but then you have somebody on the team who knows where the the bodies are buried, mm-hmm. you know, usually that leads to success. And then I say that you, you create these kind of personas or archetypes. And then I've met people who have a combination of both where they're like, they've worked in an industry for 20 years, but they see the world in a different way. Yeah. And so, those are those are great entrepreneurs
0: as well Seems like a lot of these more physical businesses especially in like like you mentioned kind of this built space there a lot of them are relationship driven traditionally and i was curious if if uh if those founders actually need to have like if, mm. it's almost necessary for the founders to have background and they already have some established connections to be able to you know get distribution for their product
1: or for just yeah kind of- yeah, I think, I think that is important, but it's not always the, the way you can get that in advisors that you have. So people who are in the industry and, and believe in what you're creating, or you can have it in, you know, hires that you bring on a VP of sales and that knows the market really well. Um, so there's different ways to actually get that piece. Ultimately what you want and as an investor, what you're looking for is like, do they understand the nuance of how relationships work today? Yeah. Right, how transactions occur, especially if you're doing a B2B marketplace or even if you're selling a software, do they understand what the actual pain point is today that they, their customer is concerned about? You know, Sometimes you see if, if someone's too much of an outsider or just lacks understanding of what the key pain point is of their customer, sometimes they'll go out and, and pitch the long-term vision that maybe is scary or just too out there for their customer or the customer is just not concerned with now. And so just having an understanding of that nuance really helps you in how you frame Mm -hmm. the company that leads to kind of like scale and distribution opportunities with strategic partners.
0: Yeah, is kind of the status quo basically pushback against any technology adoption or are a lot of these companies kind of hungry to get an edge against each other by maybe embracing a startup? offering offering. That,
1: i mean technology. i mean generally generally you could say it's a pushback but you know if there's certain events like there was a pushback for a lot of people like just consumers to actually utilize the instacarts of the world and that's changed because of a once in a lifetime hopefully i'm knocking on wood once in a lifetime i don't know if i can do this twice Um, but once in a lifetime or just like, you know, very big macro event. Um, And so that's accelerated adoption. So you've seen that, especially in this recent cycle, Mm -hmm. the uh, adoption be accelerated due to the pandemic and other things. But um, generally, uh, you know, a lot of the powers that be that you could be selling to in these old industries, they're just they know what they're gonna get from their current provider mm-hmm. and the risk of changing, it's like you have to find out an interesting way to have them kind of like to make that relationship less sticky. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, that, no, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Is it more so like packaging versus kind of proprietary technology is really what differentiates the companies in the space? Like whether they're successful or not.
1: When well, you mean packaging? You mean like how you position yeah. it?
0: Yeah, okay. yeah, like how you position it. How you position your product?
1: That kind of yeah, thing. I would say sometimes the the best um, technology doesn't always win. Yeah. And so, what is that telling us? It tells us, okay, the best position, the best partners. Um, you can win a market without having the best technology. So then, it's really about like the entrepreneur.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I feel like in particularly some of these enterprise AI companies, just generally, oh, well, a decent a decent amount don't seem to be doing anything like that novel. But they're just able to, you know, like basically able to frame it in, like in a good way and clearly show whatever value add they're providing. Do you do you have a similar point of view? How a lot of these like a lot of these enterprise AI companies don't really have this kind of proprietary technology. It's more so just how good they are at go to market. Or do you really think they do have actually that like that real technological edge?
1: I think a lot of them do. I think even if they even if they do have some proprietary edge, the thing with AI companies is, do you actually do you have cool technology, or do you have a problem that you're a real problem that your cool technology solves? Yeah. Sometimes people have not figured out the problem and they've just built a solution, which is a, definitely a no-no. Um, so I, I think the other piece I'll say that is sometimes if you do have the proprietary technology, you know, it's kind of know your audience. Does your audience really care? Like yeah. the customers sometimes aren't as sophisticated and don't really care about, about it. Yeah, uh, is it still... Is it
0: still one of the more traditional top down sales for really for a lot of these industries that you focus on as opposed to more of this like product led growth that you see for more of these like software tools for like engineers and stuff like yeah,
1: that? Yeah, I, I, I would say primarily that's true. Um, although you're starting to see some companies, whether it's solutions that are focused on a function, you start to see some of them. Um, Come up that are doing this a combination of the two, mm-hmm. right? So you have like maybe tiers. You have the enterprise tier, the highest, second tier, the middle tier is like a a, a paid for an individual, right? And then last the kind of is a, the bottom tier is a freemium. And so the goal is to kind of be attacking from all of the uh, angles that yeah. really get people entrenched into your product. And so you're seeing a little bit. Um, more, I mean, honestly, more in SMB when you're selling the SMB enterprises, but you're starting to see it a little bit more, especially, I mean, if you look at just data tools and dev tools, yeah, you're seeing that a lot, but for these older industries, you're not seeing it as much.
0: Hmm. And, And how do you, like, how do you continue to kind of keep this competitive edge just based on your prior background when more, you know, more investors are coming to these, some of these sectors, like prop tech, for example, has become much more popular in the past couple of years, it seems.
1: Um, I would say, you know, continuing to like be humble and continue to understand kind of what you know and what you don't know. Um, always trying to talk to as many experts as I can within my network. Yeah. Um, and since I look at a lot of enterprise, I try to talk to friends from Columbia or from my grad school who are working in industry they know what the real pain points are they know what people are looking for um so yeah that's that's uh that's that's one thing that i try to do to get an edge so i can continually just like when i was in equity research Mm -hmm. continually uh refine my thesis
0: yeah that, that makes sense and just shifting back to college uh, what's a typical piece of advice that's typically given, that that's given to you know, college students wanting to work in BC or tech that you think might be a bit misguided?
1: Um, well, it's been so long almost that I've been in college. So <laughs> what, I, what I'll assume is that you know, people feel that they have to have the right amount of experience before they can you know talk or interact. And I think thanks to the internet and being able to... these tools being able to get information early um, you can put yourself out there more and in in a strategic way and so i push people to connect with you know um people who work in tech who are alums, uh who you know people work in bc and you know tell them your point of view on where things are going Right, You can use data of talking to young entrepreneurs that are your classmates or things that you're seeing in the markets, um, because I think it's valuable. Um, like your generation is going to continue to drive what change is gonna look like for enterprise. And so kind of like, don't feel like you have to be a certain level of clout before you can provide your opinion.
0: Is is there sort of a is there sort of like a minimum level, you know, of knowledge to be able to be able to actually engage with somebody working in the field without kind of like feeling like you're wasting their time?
1: I would say reading up on that person if they have a blog or just even their bio, their company's website, that's really important. So you can really um, customize the questions uh, for them, and so you come way more informed and they can be directed. I think the other thing is people usually fall into the, hey, how did you get into VC? Or, hey, how did you get into, which isn't as relevant as of a conversation. And coming from my perspective, I usually like to learn more about what the student is working on, what they think, what their perspective is, um, what questions they're asking themselves for as far as a career. So then I can kind of then put in some of my anecdotes on what I did uh to help kind of like show them one of many paths that they can go right mm-hmm. um me just providing kind of like now stale advice of what i did yeah in 2015 isn't as helpful.
0: Yeah that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Also it just seems like hearing a lot of people's like how they ended up and like how they ended up with VC or even founding a company it seems like a lot of the parts are sort of happenstance or are very circumstantial anyways. Mm -hmm. yeah so so just to close i was i was curious if there's a book lecture a class from your undergrad that like has stuck with you and might influence something you do either like in your life or in your work
1: um that's a great question um so many books we read so i can't even think of one i think the I'll tell you the thing I appreciate the most is actually the other students, mm-hmm. right? And um, you know, going back to my reunions and talking to just seeing how accomplished and smart and, re- and like refined my classmates are. Um, and they always had that. I've always been impressed by them. And so being able to uh, a lot of my best communication skills definitely come from peers. And so I would just say, you know, cherish that. Whether it's in the classroom, outside of the classroom. Um, the beautiful thing about the core, is I sound like a commercial for Columbia, even uh, though I didn't appreciate it when I was there, yeah. is the beautiful thing about the core is even if we read the same books, based on what's going on macro, we can have very vastly different conversations. So... Understanding, you, you're not just rinsing, repeating. You're like actually. It's kind of like a quilt, right? Like yeah, you guys are creating things and starting conversations that um, you'll take on. You know, whether it's skills that you get pointers with how to communicate, but then also conversations that you'll probably be grappling with, grappling with for the rest of your life, and how you guys shape, you know, the business world, arts world uh and the like so that's it as far as I say enjoy the conversations yeah I think
0: that's I and mean, that's great well thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast
1: my pleasure thanks Al.